At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Brooklyn-based alternative rock band, They Might Be Giants, has been delighting audiences for decades with their catchy melodies, witty lyrics, and unconventional instrumentation. Ahead of their Atlanta performance this Saturday at the Eastern, singer and accordionist John Linnell talks with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Plus, a tribute to a giant of classical music, the choral legacy of conductor Robert Shaw is the focus of an upcoming concert by the Chamber Vocal Ensemble Coro Vocati. First, the Atlanta Science Festival returns this year from March 10th through the 25th, and the programming will include several exciting events at the crossroads of science and art. There's a competition for inventors of new musical instruments, a panel presentation by world-traveling science explorers, and the Rube and Noob show inspired by Rube Goldberg machines. Mesa Salaita, the co-executive director and co-founder of the festival, joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having me, Lois. The kickoff for this year's festival is Destination Science, a presentation showcased by three real-life explorers who conduct scientific research in remote parts of the globe. Will you tell us more about the event and its presenters? Absolutely. So the inspiration behind this event sort of came to us when we were in the middle of pandemic sadness about not being able to go anywhere. And I just sort of thought about how science can take you places throughout the world. And, you know, this is a show about the arts. And I think that there's so much inspiration to be found for the arts when you just look at nature. And so we invited these three women who are incredible scientists and explorers. They travel the world. One studies sharks in Australia. One looks at glaciers in the Arctic and Antarctic. And another one studies all sorts of cool animals in Africa and across the world. 
And we've invited them all to share about their travels, to share images and excitement from their explorations, and to just sort of inspire us about the places that science may take us. Hmm. It's a Destination Science is moderated by WABE's Molly Samuel, we're proud to say. Me too. <laughs> yeah, she is a treasure. We also recently added the travel education hero of public media, Rick Steves, to our list of City Lights contributors. And he consistently inspires us to explore new attitudes toward travel. Is it a goal of Destination Science to inspire budding scientists to broaden their horizons through world travel? Absolutely. I mean, I think it goes in two directions. So science can open the doors to the world for you, but also the world can open the doors to science. <laughs> and so you take a program like Rick Steves' show and all the amazing places that he teaches you about and shares with you on the radio and makes you want to go to them. And you go to these places and the incredible things you can unearth and the the nature that you see in a lot of these locations is just causes you to ask some questions about the world. And I think that at the heart of it, that curiosity and that question asking is really what science is all about. So, you know, it's possible that some of the folks who attend this event are going to get excited and they're going to go become scientists and they're going to go do field research. And some of them are just going to go out into the world and they're going to see amazing things and they're going to ask questions about those things and learn on their own. And uh, that's also wonderful and really welcome. So I, I hope that that happens for all the people in the audience. Well, your enthusiasm certainly is an inspiration. I'm getting excited just thinking <laughs> about this presentation now, Mesa. The explorers you mentioned in destination science include an expert on glaciers, a marine science communicator, and you mentioned the wildlife and conservation expert. These three fields all connect to the theme of climate change. What might the presenter's individual travel history show us about Earth's visible signs of climate change today? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, an important goal for me in this event was to inspire wonder and appreciation for the Earth. And some of that people may take away and decide that they want to travel more or that they want to go create some art based off of the amazing things that are around the world and connected to science. But for me, a really big part of that was just that appreciation of seeing some unexplored parts of the earth that will really hopefully have folks walking away feeling like the earth is something that we need to take care of. We need to value it. I think inherently some of these women will be sharing images of, you know, the, with the glaciers, I mean, a lot of them are disappearing. <laughs> and I think seeing, seeing that sort of firsthand experience that Dr. M. Jackson will share is, is really just going to be eye-opening and seeing the impacts on our oceans. I hope that one of the things that people walk away from after this event is just a deep desire to care for the earth. Yeah. On the festival website, 
there's a postcard sweepstakes called Where Will Science Take You? in which entrants can hope to win a dream destination travel adventure (laughs) via science. Who's eligible and how does the contest work? Yeah, so on the back of our booklet, which you'll find some locations where you can pick up a booklet around town or at any of our 150 events, you can grab a booklet. There's also some instructions on how to download a sheet from our website. But basically, uh, we wanted to carry on that idea of, hey, science can take you cool places. And I had a dream. My initial dream was that you listed wherever you wanted to go study something, and I would take you there to study it. But the logistics of that were complicated if somebody said they wanted to go to outer space. So (laughs) (laughs) we thought about the places that were more easily accessible that, that really inspired that same wonder and where you could ask questions and see amazing things. And national parks were the first thing that came to mind. And so uh, we have probably about a dozen national parks on the list. Folks can fill out a postcard. And when I say folks, that's really anyone in the state of Georgia. The official entrant needs to be 18 or older, but certainly a child could draw their dream destination on the front to study science and write about what they want to study on the back of the postcard and they mail it in and we choose a winner at random and that winner gets to go to a national park of their choosing from our list. And I think that the Delta flight credit and the rental car credit should take probably about a family of four, somewhere pretty cool. Wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with the co-director of the 2023 Atlanta Science Festival, Mesa Salida. The event Science of the Circus takes place March 11th at Challenge Aerial Studio. What will that event teach about the science of aerial performance? Oh, my gosh. Well, we've had aerial performance uh, a number of times during the festival in, in years past, and we've also had science of circus in general. And it's just a really fun and clever way to see science in action. I remember a few years ago when I went to see this event, they had some jugglers. And they were talking about the, the parabolas and the math that's involved in adding a ball into your juggling technique or subtracting a ball and if it was even possible and how high you had to throw the ball to get it all to work. And it was just sort of mind-blowing, these things that, you know, you learn these sort of hand tricks and you don't necessarily think about the math principles behind them. So it's kind of fun little, like, science windows into some of the activities at the circus. Hmm. One yearly event in the festival has been called the Pulitzer of the New Instrument World, referring to musical instruments newly invented by participants in the Guthman Musical Instrument Competition. Last year's new inventions included something called a glissatar a clarinet-like instrument with a continuous ribbon that created fluid pitches instead of individual keys. What can you tell us about this year's contestants? Yeah, well, this is one of my favorite events. This is actually the 25th edition of the competition. Uh, It started off as a piano competition, 
And then in 2009, it became general, like a musical instrument competition. And at this event, you just see some crazy instruments. You kind of think that these things are just like, you know, there's the piano and there's the clarinet and there's a harp or whatever the instruments are and always have been are the instruments that we will continue to use forevermore. But there's so much innovation happening and what better place to have that showcase than Georgia Tech. And I, I'm super excited about one of the instruments that's going to be shown this year. There's a couple that are based on like mathematical devices or inspired by them. And I just love the name of this, the Abacusynth, <laughs> which <laughs> uses an abacus as a way to teach the basics of music synthesizers. So it's just kind of, I remember playing with an abacus as a kid. Not that I'm that old, but <laughs> I, it was more of a toy. But yeah, I think there's so many interesting things that can be done with technology and music. And this event just showcases it all. And like on top of it, you get to hear some, basically a concert from each of these musicians who's, who are playing the instruments that they've developed. So it's it's phenomenal, and I highly recommend everybody attend this event. For the younger crowd, Rube and Noob are putting on a show about how to build machines from simple objects, inspired by the famous Rube Goldberg machine design kids might recognize from games like Mousetrap. Who are these characters calling themselves Rube and Noob, and what will they teach audiences? Well, I, I have to just give a little shout out as a mom who used to take my kids. My kids are now a little bit older now, but I used to take my children to the theater for the very young that the Alliance has. And this is part of the program for the theater for the very young. So I think the you know the recommended ages are like two or three up to like age six or something like that. And the plays are simple, they're interactive, they're really colorful and just playful. And they they get kids excited about theater, for sure. But what I love about this one, of course, is how it showcases to scientists and their curiosity at discovering something new. So it's interactive. They'll invite the kids onto into the it's in like a black box type theater. So they'll invite them into the space. They'll be building machines from simple objects and like just sort of exploring the wonder that each of those machines provides. And it's going to be sort of magical. Hmm. The Devil Wears Science is a fashion show complete with a catwalk, but this fashion, (laughs) not to be confused with that in the movie with Meryl Streep, this fashion, (laughs) while design and aesthetic are certainly involved, focuses on wearable technology, sustainable garments, and all the ways science and fashion intersect. So please tell us more about some of the creations we'll see on the runway. Absolutely. So I was super excited to have this event as part of the festival. It's been developed by um, a longtime partner at Georgia Tech, and she's she's working with a team of students who they're going to have like a 3D printed dress on the runway. And I mean, I think a lot of times when we think about 
maybe the intersection of fashion and technology. Maybe there's like lights involved somehow in the fabric that light up as you move, but there's there's so many overlaps that can be explored between science, technology, and fashion. And I think especially you think about sustainability, that's a huge part of fashion development nowadays. I heard recently that in order for a garment to be sustainable and you should wear it like at least 30 times. <laughs> so, you know, when when the sustainability is taken into account on the front end of how that garment was produced, I think that's really important. So they're, for example, showcasing some sustainable alternatives to tortoiseshell jewelry that's made from taguan nuts. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and then uh, just thinking about also another thing that they're exploring is this idea of like it's not it's not terribly fashionable, but like heavy protective clothing, like beekeeping suits or body armor or firefighting gear, how you can use technology to manage overheating and heat stroke when people are wearing these items. So I think there's there's a lot of different elements that can be explored and there'll be a runway and champagne and strawberries and a lot of fun. <laughs> well, all very thought provoking too. Visual artists and art lovers have quite a treat planned coming from the exciting field of virtual reality. The Virtual Reality Open House is offering free demonstrations of the MetaQuest 2 VR set where users can experience immersive art-making technology like VR painting, sculpting and spray painting. I'm curious how this event came together. Absolutely. So I was lucky enough to, I went to an event recently in underground Atlanta and I got to see the space that this is happening in. And a lot of times underground Atlanta feels a little bit dead, (laughs) but when you walk around and you see like some of the really cool artsy things that are happening down there. And this is just another part of it. It's, you know, presented by Fulton County Arts and Culture, this public art futures lab. And they've got all these VR headsets and are going to be working with people to help them understand how you can use virtual reality to do 3D modeling, painting, sculpting, all sorts of really cool sort of intersections between this crazy technology and, and the arts. Mesa Salaita, co-director of the 2023 Atlanta Science Festival. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about a concert tribute to the choral legacy of conductor Robert Shaw, performed by the Atleta Ensemble Coro Vocati. Amplifying Atleta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Last fall, the Atlanta-based chamber chorus Coro Vocati performed a concert called Dear World with music inspired by letters children wrote addressing their home planet. A new concert will be performed by the chorus on March 11th and 12th called Dear People. The repertoire honors the late Atlanta Symphony Orchestra conductor and music director Robert Shaw, who founded the ASO Chorus and inspired generations of musicians. Coro Vocati Artistic Director John Dixon joins me now via Zoom to talk more about the upcoming concert. John, welcome back to City Lights. It's so nice to be back with you again. Thank you. Likewise. Please tell us why you wanted to put together a concert in tribute to Robert Shaw for this season of Coro Vacati's works. Sure. Uh, there's no particular anniversary, but Coro Vacati now is entering our 14th season together. And uh, there's never a time that I am not mindful of the influence uh, that Shaw has had on really all of our Atlanta-centric singers, many of them beneficiaries, of course, of his legacy, but even some that actually sang with him for a significant amount of time. And in forming this whole season together, as we did, you mentioned the Dear World program, it just dawned on me, why not do a Dear People program and honor Shaw through his music? Hmm. Yeah, we last spoke about the performance of Dear World, and I wondered if Dear People was a spiritual successor to that concert. I was hoping you would talk about how Dear People reflected Robert Shaw himself. Yes, I I want to be clear to say that I'm one of those unfortunate choral musicians that uh, I got to sing with Shaw once, but growing up in Texas, I was just far enough away from the Southeast and Atlanta influence that so many of my colleagues who sang with Shaw for years, I just didn't have that opportunity. So my knowledge of Shaw is primarily through recordings and through conversations with colleagues, the books that have been written on him, of course. But what I know of Shaw's influence is that he saw the choral instrument as one of the last great institutions to create and uh, nurture community in this world.
Dear World was arranged around a collection of letters written by school children speaking from the heart to the world at large. How does Dear People fit in with that theme? Right. Dear People was a term that Shaw often used in beginning his letters to his choirs, going all the way back to the collegiate chorale in the 1940s and the Robert Shaw chorale in the 1950s. He would write these amazing philosophical choral techniques, whatever he wanted to put in it in a letter, and he would often entitle it Dear People. And so for this concert, really, this is kind of the focus on the choral musicians, on what Shaw has to say to them and ultimately through them to the audience and world at large. And can you tell us about some of the selections the ensemble will sing as part of this concert and how those might relate to Mr. Shaw's Dear People letters? Right. I didn't want to do just works that Shaw had arranged. Most of his work as a composer was arranging with Alice Parker. That, of course, encompassed a great deal of Americana, not just spiritual arrangements, but but our whole singing heritage of, of folk songs, folk hymns, sea shanties, all of these things that really were indigenous to our American Choral Society, that was one segment of it. We also know Shaw through especially his legacy with the ASO and the chorus, that he was a champion of the masterwork, the choral orchestral masterworks. And so we took various selections, excerpts from many of, from the Brahms Requiem or Haydn Creation or Elijah, and we also know Shaw to be a person that championed social justice, which, of course, is such an important part of our present focus in society. And so all of these aspects of who Shaw was, I tried to capture. The selections themselves in social justice were doing pieces by Gwyneth Walker, The Tree of Peace, Rosephany Powell, To Sit and Dream on the Langston Hughes poem. Andre Thomas, Fences, uh, women and Black composers who are some of the finest that we have to represent these areas of, of social justice. And then, of course, his folk hymns, such as Wondrous Love. sea shanty what shall we do with the drunken sailor it's quite it's quite an eclectic program mm. though a white man robert shaw was known as a champion for social justice 
And he was outspoken in his support of race relation in the choruses he led as far back as the early 1940s. Do you think Shaw helped to contribute to the broader interest in black spirituals taken by academic music institutions in recent decades? Yes, I actually think he was somewhat of a bridge. You know, the very famous story when he formed Collegiate Chorale in New York City at Norman Vincent Peale's church. At that time, Peale unfortunately told Shaw that he could remain and sing at the church with the singers as long as he eliminated all Catholics, Jews, and Negroes from, from his choir. And he immediately took the chorus and left and went another place. But he seems to be, for me at least, one of the bridges between, say, the original Jester Hairston, William Dawson, the great Black composers that took the oral traditions of spirituals and translated them into a choral format. Shaw took this and also created a genre of choral representations of spirituals, and in many ways could be said to be a precursor to Moses Hogan, Stacey Gibbs, and many contemporary though Moses has passed, many of the contemporary Black composers that have also infused additional things like New Orleans jazz rhythms and, and chords. So Shaw was kind of a, um, an intermediary between those groups, I think, with the spiritual. Can't you feel it? your event page, there appears a quote from Robert Shaw. The arts may indeed be not the luxury of the few, but the last best hope of humanity to inhabit with joy this planet. Yeah. Such grand and big-hearted sentiments seem to underlie much of the work of your chorus, John. How do you see music as crucial to the well-being of humanity? I think certainly in its innate beauty, it brings us simply closer. All art is an expression of creator and creativity. One of the ways that I form this program is on a quote from Thomas Aquinas when he wrote The Beauty of the Artwork proceeds from the beauty of the artist. When one thing makes and another is made, the making stands between them. I think that that's, that would be very much a, I think kind of a Shaw philosophy. I could hear him really expounding on, on the idea that you have on one hand a creator maker and the artwork that is made, but the process of the making is what really makes us 
community, that process within Coral Bukati of rehearsing and singing together makes not only an artwork alive again, but it creates a community within us that has validity. And I think certainly in this time, choral programming, we taught you and I've talked before about this, the importance of social justice and how how much the choral concert has taken on themes of underrepresented peoples of the major social issues of the day. And it is becoming an instrument of education, not just of creating beauty, but of educating and even motivating in various ways, a society to change. John Dixon, Artistic Director of Coro Vocati, the Atlanta Choral Ensemble presents a concert tribute to Robert Shaw, Dear People, at local churches on March 11th and 12th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, they might be giants, play the Eastern this Saturday. And we'll catch up with singer and accordionist John Linnell. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Look at Harry in the alley by the light switch. Who watches over you? Make a little birdhouse in your soul. Not to put too fine a point on it. Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. The Brooklyn-based alternative rock band, They Might Be Giants, has been delighting audiences for decades with their catchy melodies, witty lyrics, and unconventional instrumentation. Over the years, they've released 18 rock alternative albums, five children's albums, and performed on numerous movie and television soundtracks. Their most recent project is Book, a full-color art book and full-length album, which received a Grammy nomination for Best Boxed or Special Limited Edition Package. John Linnell and John Flansburg make up the duo, and they'll perform in Atlanta at the Eastern this Saturday, March 11th. John Linnell sings and plays several instruments, including accordion, saxophone, clarinet, and keyboards. He recently joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes via Zoom and explained how the piano became his gateway into music. Well, I guess, I mean, I, I had a snare drum as a, as a young child that I banged on, but I think the first instrument that got me interested in playing music was uh, we had a piano in our house. In fact, we were boarding someone else's piano, and, um, you know, I think 
it was sort of an experiment on the part of my family. They didn't know if anybody was interested in playing it, but I became uh, kind of glued to that piano. Uh, so that's what got me started. When did the accordion come into your life? Well, um, not until after I'd already played in, in, in a professional band and in a high school band and done other stuff. And, and uh, John Flansberg and I were kind of beginning this project and a friend of mine loaned me her accordion as a you know just to for me to check it out and it just suddenly seemed like oh this is this was the perfect thing for our project that John and I were doing because it was this you know unusual but very useful addition to the show that we were putting together where I could stand up next to John and face the audience and and uh, and and also move around and it and it was just like it you know it just had a lot of different things going for it you know um I'm not a I'm not a trained accordionist, and I just was <laughs> sort of transferring my piano uh, skills over to the right hand of the accordion. Uh, so I still feel like I'm not I'm kind of a um, interloper in a way. <laughs> well, it seems like it's been such a good match for you. Your witty lyrics and sense of humor are often the gateway for people into the world of they might be giants. But it's my understanding that you and John are both very serious about music. Yeah, yeah. People would be shocked to know how precious John and I are about the whole thing. Um, and we don't consider it to be uh, silly or, you know, we're not we're not really trying to be funny. It's just I think we just feel like the only way to be interesting is to um, keep it interesting for ourselves. You know, we're basically doing this project for us. And, uh, you know, anybody else who thinks that it's any good is welcome to check it out. But I think that was the kind of the the whole impetus for John and I was to do something that we would like. Um, that's really where we're at. I can only imagine that's what sustains you for this long. I mean, this is an incredible length of time you've been doing it, this. That's exactly, yeah, that's totally right. Um, uh, we, I'm sure we'd have stopped. You know, I mean, if we were just trying to be successful at it or have hit songs, you know, we've never really had any hits in the U.S., but we we still like the pro- whole process of, writing, recording, going out and playing the songs, and, and a lot of other ways that uh, we can do creative work uh, in this project. So it's just fun for us, you know, and, and luckily it, it pays for itself. And going on tour is still fun for you as well? Mostly. I mean, it's it's challenging. You know, we're, we're, we're a couple of old men. We're actually a whole <laughs> bunch of old men. Uh, and we have to be a lot more careful about um, not, you know, endangering our health by uh, hitting the road too hard. So we, we, you know, we, we try to make the show um, interesting and, you know, energetic, but still uh, possible for us. <laughs> so you're saying you're sleeping well and you're staying hydrated. Trying to. Yeah, yeah. Those, yeah, exactly. Those two are high on the list. <laughs> Very good. Well, let's talk about your latest release for a moment book. What inspired you to take on this elaborate project? Well, I think it's, I mean, I have to credit John Flansburg. I think it was um, mainly his idea. We'd recorded uh, most of the music for this album, and then we were trying to figure out how to package it. And that's really kind of Flansburg's métier. He's, he's really interested in the package, you know, also the, the message, you know, like what, what is it we're sending out? So I think he thought... Um, he wanted to make an object, you know, he wanted to make something that wasn't just like every, you know, every musical release that's sort of come out in the last couple decades 
has felt kind of ephemeral in a way because it all lives floats in the digital world. And um, we've, like a lot of other bands, we've gotten back into doing um, vinyl releases and stuff like that. So this was kind of a more full-blown version of something you could put on your coffee table. And uh, Flansburg was the main person involved in the package design and working with the typographer and the uh, photographer on making this into a book. For the unfamiliar, can you describe how you created art through your lyrics? So the the, uh, typographer who um, is very interested in this kind of thing came up with the idea of typing everything in the old-fashioned way on paper using a, a, a 1960s IBM Selectric typewriter, which he had acquired, um, which essentially it's an electric typewriter with this technical advance that it has uh, replaceable type balls. Instead of hammers striking the paper, it's a ball on a stick that spins around and the appropriate letter smashes into the page uh, within a split second. And this was a big advance in, I guess, sometime in the 1960s, I think, uh, that they came up with this thing where you have one typewriter that could type many different typefaces, but it was still a a mechanical thing. It was not computer-driven in any way, Uh, which was, you know, I, I remember when this thing was a current technology. And interestingly, Flansburg and I both worked on the high school newspaper in the 1970s. So the IBM Selectric was something that we were aware of at the time and and very, very interested in. That is so cool. Those of you who haven't seen it, I encourage you to look for it. And it is absolutely stunning. Thank you. Your career has spanned decades. And at some point, you started creating children's albums. I would love to know why. Yes. Well, it's a great question. And and the answer really is that we were doing a lot of projects at that moment. Uh, We were doing music for television. We were doing our usual thing of recording albums for adults. And um, in the midst of all of that, uh, somebody at Rounder Records uh, asked us whether we'd be interested in making a children's album. And I think we sort of thought, well, we're, we're spending all this time in the studio anyway, so let's Let's just put that one onto the into our inbox, and uh, you know they gave us a budget, and we um, we were just doing it in a free form way, very very much having fun, and not even really considering who this was for. We didn't know what age group we were particularly oh, wow. uh, aiming it at, and you know it was just like oh let's just make a kids record, and um, and then to our surprise it it outsold the uh, album that came out the same year uh, uh, that we made for adults. So we thought oh yeah well I guess this is more of a thing than we realized. And after that we hooked up with uh, Disney Sound, the Disney Record Company, and made a bunch of DVD you know combination music and visual discs for Disney. And that was that became a series. At that point, started taking it more seriously. Uh, so yeah, that was something we did for probably we spent about ten years uh, doing those projects. Um, Do you see yourself making another? 
we haven't got any plans right now. Uh, the last one we did was was a number of years ago, but but we're we're super busy with with what we're doing all the time. So you know, I think if it feels right, if the project feels right, maybe we will. But we, you know, I have to say we've gotten a great response from you know children and former children who <laughs> some of whom were introduced to us through the kids records who are you know these are now adults who first heard us you know 20 years ago uh because they were kids listening to kids records and have become adult fans and that wasn't really the we weren't like calculating that this would work out this way but yeah that was obviously a, a great uh benefit of the whole of the whole thing it's a wonderful part of your history while you were putting out children's albums did you tour and play for kids we did. Um, and, and you know, interestingly, and this wasn't obvious to us when we started, but it's actually hard work to do a show uh, for kids. I mean, particularly like a show where we feel like we're playing up to our normal standards because kids are a little bit tougher in a way <laughs> uh, to perform for. And part of the reason is that they aren't as... Um, I think what it is is that they don't feel as implicated in the success or failure of the show. So they're not <laughs> worried about whether, you know, adult audiences tend to want to face the stage and applaud at the end of every song and do all those standard formal tokens of encouragement, uh, which it turns out we are very uh, dependent on. <laughs> so it's really weird to play for kids because they often are talking during the songs and talking in between the songs and and not facing the stage running around you know and we're we're trying to get their attention you know hey hey we're up here playing and it can be it can be kind of demoralizing even even if the kids are having a great time and you know you know as like i said often these kids remember us and we're, we have an important influence on them later in life but even so, they're so cavalier about the whole thing that it's it's actually very weird uh, uh, to be a rock band and perform in that situation. Uh, yeah. Fun, interesting, and um, but it's kind of hard work at the same time. Oh, I totally get that. Well, the Eastern show is not for children. I'm assuming it's not all ages. Is that right? Um, we tend to do uh, not all ages shows, and the reason is we tend to discourage that because it's really not such a safe environment for very young kids, uh, a, a rock club. We, we, don't, we don't want kids getting hurt, basically. Yeah, yeah that was, it's a bummer. I got you. At the Eastern, you guys are playing yes. your 1990 album Flood in its entirety? We are. And that's, you know, it's only that's only about, I don't know what, 45 minutes worth of music. So that can't be the whole show. But we will be playing all the songs from Flood, which people love, you know, people who even people who aren't old enough to uh, remember when it came out. But um, it's, you know, it's obviously one of our most popular records. So we we started out with the idea of doing this anniversary series of shows. And um, unfortunately, the um, the anniversary actually happened when COVID hit. So there's been a very long delay on some of these performances. Right. Um, but we committed to them. We're doing them. <laughs> you know, really, this what we've hit now this this season is we're now at the 40th anniversary of our very first show as they might be giants which was um this this time of year in uh in 19 
83 was when we played as they might be giants so it's that we're now a 40 year old band uh but we're also playing our our 30 year old album uh for those who are interested and we're playing material from the new album book and we're playing other you know deep catalog stuff and um and then the you know the songs that um some people who barely know who we are may be familiar with as the sort of the so-called hits They might be giants, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. The band plays the Eastern this Saturday, March 11th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. Georgia's own credit union is illuminating local heroes on top of its building. In February, a 450-foot digital banner featured Influential Leaders for Black History Month with illustrations by Atlanta artist Craig Singleton, also known as Seaflux Singh. Singh also illustrated two tribute banners, one for Representative John Lewis and another for Ambassador Andrew Young, whose mural will debut on his birthday, March 12th. My creative process when creating the digital mural for Andrew Young, Ambassador Young, was kind of simple. I just wanted to showcase him in three different facets. Uh, One, I have a determined young Andrew Young, um, which represents focus, uh, vision, courage, honestly. And uh, the other one I have is him in motion, being a leader, right? And then the one in the center is an older picture of him where it's just him smiling, but it represents a humbleness. When you look into the man's eyes, you know, and knowing the type of work that he put in, you know, you kind of take a look at yourself and it's like, well, this is an example of, of something that can motivate me to add my piece into the world, into my community, however I see fit. Marin Krauschar, executive director of Georgia's own foundation, shared why they created their digital platform. When we initially introduced the Georgia's own sign in 2018, our goal was to create an innovative and really exciting way to engage our community And uh, one of our biggest hopes was that one of those avenues would be through large-scale public art. We were really fortunate to have been partnering with Emory's Ethics and the Arts program at the time. And um, through them, we were able to connect with really some just incredibly talented uh, local artists who knew how to take advantage of this 
massive canvas. Truly, it's 450 feet high and the length of two basketball courts, just for a little bit of reference there. You know, we are just thrilled at how well received these digital murals have been and really look forward to continue to amplify and empower these local artists in a way that we feel has been pretty unique in our community. You can see the latest Skyline artwork at 100 Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., NPR's Tiny Desk Contest is underway, and we'll catch up with the men behind the desk, Bob Boylan and Bobby Carter. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans hits the red carpet for a conversation with the winner of this year's SCAD Icon Award, Sarah Michelle Geller. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories, is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 